Luke 23. If you have a Bible, you can open it there to Luke 23. We'll start at verse 50 and read into chapter 24. And here in this passage, Luke gives us a little picture of the moments and the days immediately following the tragic but, must I say, providential death of Christ. And so Luke shows what God provides despite what we may be looking for. So young Christians, you young disciples as you're listening, and I know there are more of you in here this morning than normal since we don't have worship training for fours and fives today. So this is kind of a field trip for you to come into the worship service and see uh, if you can, can sit through a sermon maybe. And as you try to do that, I'll give you a little help. You can listen to this passage of Scripture and maybe draw a picture. This is a good passage to draw a picture about. Here, some women go to the tomb where Jesus was buried, where he, where he was laid after his death. He wasn't technically buried underground, but in a tomb. And some women go to the tomb. What do they see when they get there? You young disciples, as you listen, what do they see when they get there? And maybe you can draw a picture of it. It's a great scene to draw a picture of. So this is Luke 23, starting in verse 50. Now, there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action, that is, to crucify Jesus. And he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took the body down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. It was the day of preparation, and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandment. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you, while he was still in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, And be crucified, and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them, who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but these words of our God will stand forever. O Lord, we pray, as we always do, that you would grant to us eyes to see and recognize your good news here. Would you cause us by the work of your Spirit to believe and to have life? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. One of the very unique elements of the Gospel of Luke, distinct from the other three, Matthew, Mark, and John, 
is that Luke is actually a personal letter. It's, a, it's an account addressed to one person. Now, of course, it's been a great benefit to all the church corporately through the ages and to anyone, in fact, who might read this account of Luke's gospel. But it was addressed to one person. Luke calls this person most excellent Theophilus. That name, Theophilus, is is a name that kind of leads some to suspect that there wasn't actually a person named Theophilus, but rather Luke was writing to a general audience, and maybe that's the case, perhaps. But, But Luke writes to this person, Theophilus, and he does it with a stated purpose. He says, I'm writing to you so that you may be certain about these things that you've heard of. Theophilus, I want you to be certain. That name is important. The name means something, Theophilus. If you have a little bit of functional Greek in your vocabulary, maybe from paying attention to your grammar teacher in school, you might know that Theo, Theos, is God in Greek, and Philus is a a form of the Greek word phileo, meaning to love. And you may know that there are a few different words for love. Agape is love for many. Eros is love for one. Phileo is love for a few. In other words, phileo is friendship love. And so Theophilus is a friend of God. He's God-friendly. And so Luke is writing to one who is God-friendly, by name at least, if not in reality. And it's totally appropriate on an Easter Sunday to take a look at that and see because so many people come to church on Easter who are friendly toward God. I mean, you may be a a regular attender, even a member in our church, and so you're here because you're God-friendly. Or maybe you're a visitor from out of town coming to, to be with family, and you're friendly toward God. Or maybe you're religious but uncommitted, perhaps, and yet curious about Christianity, maybe even skeptical but curious. And And still you're here because you're somewhat God-friendly. You're inclined to think, I want to know who God is. And so you're here on this unique Sunday because you recognize that the historical reality of the resurrection of Christ is absolutely fundamental to Christianity. Now, that fact alone doesn't mean that Christianity is true. Just because the resurrection is important for it doesn't mean that Christianity is true. There are lots of other things to think about in terms of proof for the truth of Christianity. The fact is the resurrection has always been hard for people to accept, not just today in this scientific modern age, but always. The Apostle Paul, in his travels in the book of Acts, in Acts 17, goes to Athens, Greece, and he preaches to the people there. And they're listening, they're engaged, they want to hear what he has to say. They're they're so curious about it until he mentions the resurrection of the dead. At which point they begin to mock him. Are you crazy? You're going to bring that idea into this academic arena? No. And they begin to mock him. The the resurrection of the dead has always been hard to accept. It doesn't necessarily mean just that it's central to Christianity, that Christianity is true. But it does mean that if in Christ we have hope in this life only, and there is no resurrection of the dead then we are, as Paul says, of all people, most to be pitied. In other words, the bodily resurrection of Jesus in time and space history is absolutely fundamental 
not as a theological concept, but as a historical reality. If it's untrue, then any Christian preaching is frivolous. It's futile. It has no point apart from the resurrection. But the resurrection is true. And it must be true because of what we know about living within a story. You know, you live within a story. I've mentioned that to you in past weeks. You live within the context of a narrative story. And anybody who's literary, many of you are much more so than I am, know that certain elements are necessary in a story. So, for example, Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall joking and laughing with Peter and Paul. That's not a story. I mean, as appropriate as it may be to talk about a giant anthropomorphic Easter egg sitting on a wall on this particular morning, that statement is not a story. It's just a statement. It's a description of a scene that suggests some things, but there's no story there, right? On the other hand, Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. All the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty together again. Now you have some elements that begin to build a story. It's not just a scene, but there's a problem introduced. And while there's no resolution here, it is, after all, just a nursery rhyme, but it's leading to the elements of a story. There's not resolution there, but there's a problem introduced. You live within the scope of a story. There's a scene There's a problem introduced, and there's a drama that unfolds behind it. And then there is a resolution which God has provided and for which every human being is looking. Everyone is God-friendly in the sense that everyone is looking to resolve the story. Joseph was looking for what is meaningful here in this passage. Joseph was looking for what's meaningful. And if you look for what's meaningful, you may get what you don't expect. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action. And he was looking for the kingdom of God. Joseph was a man of influence, and he was a man of means. He was a member of that Jewish council that had decided that Jesus should be put to death. Now, Joseph was a dissenting opinion on the council. And some commentators suggest maybe Joseph wasn't even present in the middle of the night after Judas betrayed Jesus to the high priest's house. And Joseph, maybe Joseph wasn't even there. I think that's kind of beside the point. Luke tells us Joseph didn't agree with their opinion. He was the dissenting voice on the council. Evidently, he understood justice. And maybe he even understood Jesus. After all, Luke says, he was looking for the kingdom of God. Joseph was looking for what was meaningful. And he would have known the Old Testament. You know, as one of these council members, a high-ranking, as it were, Jewish religious figure, Joseph would have known the Old Testament, the Bible, as it was at the time, Very well. And Joseph was looking for its meaning in the unfolding of history in the context of his own life. And Joseph, sitting on this council, was completely right to not consent to the decision of the council to put Jesus to death, wasn't he? He was right to disagree, to be the dissenting opinion. But there's a subtle but very profound irony in this. Do you see it? 
if Joseph had had his way, Jesus would not have gone to the cross. And if Jesus had not gone to the cross, then the story would never have found resolution. The fact is, the kingdom of God comes despite the sin of men, and even sometimes because of it. Even sometimes despite what someone who does right, as Joseph did, still the kingdom of God comes because of the sin of men. Joseph was looking for what was meaningful, and he used his influence to vote the right way. He used his influence to do the right thing. He did exactly what he should have done, but the flood of providence went in a completely different direction because the meaning that God fulfills is often not the meaning that you and I are looking for. Sandra was a student at Covenant Seminary when I was there. She was from Germany. She was a very studious Students. She loved books. She loved the library. Spent a lot of time there and even ended up, ended up working there to help put herself through seminary to pay her tuition. One Saturday, she was there working with the other library staff and cleaning out some storage room in the library when she slammed her head as she stood up against a shelf. And the injury was so bad that they had to take her to the hospital for some CAT scans, and she was going to, to miss you know, weeks of school with this injury, and despite the, the, even with the pain and such, she spent some time in the hospital, and the CAT scan revealed not just the extent of her injury, but the fact that there was a tumor growing inside her skull behind her ear. She would have never known, perhaps until it was too late, of that tumor inside of her skull. She could have never known about it until maybe it was too late. And yet, her dark providence in the library on that day led to something that she didn't expect in God's good providence. What, what dark providence before you in, in your path, maybe, that you, you're looking for what's meaningful and yet you recognize even now that you're going to find what you don't expect God's providence works itself out in that way sometimes. Joseph recognized it. Joseph also, this is kind of a funny thing here, Joseph with his means actually fulfills an obscure Old Testament law. With his means, Joseph provided a tomb, an empty new tomb for Jesus, one that had never been used before. And Joseph in doing that fulfills an Old Testament law. In Deuteronomy 21, we read this. Bear along with me. Here's a short little verse here. Describes something that, that the Old Testament required. If a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day. For a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land. Now, with his influence, Joseph acquired the body of Jesus. And he took that body, and he used his means to place it in a new tomb. And maybe Joseph had this law in mind, maybe he didn't, I don't know. But eight hours earlier, earlier in that day, now now remember the timeline, this is Friday afternoon. Eight hours earlier, before the crucifixion itself, early that morning, after all the all-night trial and, and abuse and beatings of Jesus, now Pilate the, 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 the local civil magistrate 
did something that is profoundly symbolic for us as Christians, unbeknownst to him. He released a man named Barabbas. Now, the Jews had been clamoring for him to crucify Jesus. And during the Passover week, which it was, the tradition, as it had come to be, was that the Roman authorities would release a Jewish prisoner to appease the Jewish masses there who didn't like the Roman authorities being there in the first place. And so Pilate wanted to release Jesus. He said, this man, Jesus, hasn't done anything wrong. I find no guilt in him. I'll just release him to you. And the people said, no. Give us Barabbas and crucify him. Pilate conceded, as he would do, to the people, and he released Barabbas. Now, Barabbas was imprisoned for insurrection and murder. Jesus, even according to Pilate, had no guilt about him. And so Pilate releases the guilty and condemns the guiltless. An enormously symbolic picture for us as Christians to recognize that he condemned Jesus who had no guilt so that the innocent was hung on a tree and therefore, according to this Old Testament scripture, cursed by God and a defilement upon the land. The guilty was set free. Joseph was looking for what is meaningful and here's what he found. He found that the kingdom of God comes when God himself takes death upon his own shoulders. People who are friendly to God understand that Jesus did die. I mean, it's a historical fact, and and people don't dispute that. But they may not recognize that Jesus had to die in order that justice should be fulfilled. Humpty Dumpty, that is the human race, had a great fall, and no amount of effort could ever reassemble the shell. Only the Maker himself, who could not ignore the justice of his own nature, could address the brokenness by fulfilling justice with his own body. Joseph did exactly what he should have done. But he did not get exactly what he expected. Now, if Joseph was looking for what was meaningful, then the women and the disciples in this account were looking for what is obvious. But, you know, if you look for what's obvious, you may miss what's significant. On the first day of the week at early dawn, the women went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus, and they were perplexed. Why were they perplexed? Because they were looking for what's obvious. There should have been a body laying there, right? I mean, that's what you would expect after just two nights there in in the tomb. Surely there's going to be a body there. Mary and Joanna and Mary went prepared for what anyone with any sense of normalcy would have done. Now, Jews didn't embalm the dead. Rather, they used spices and ointments. I don't know how all this stuff works, but somehow these things applied to the body, slow the decomposition, and in some sense lend some dignity to the deceased. And they went in order to do this. It was totally normal and obvious. It's what anyone would have done who lived in their world. But sometimes when we look for what's obvious, we miss what's truly significant. I had a friend in St. Louis, again, when I was in seminary, who was a big St. Louis Cardinals baseball fan. He loved sports. And he had three young daughters. And when his oldest daughter was old enough to, he thought, really appreciate going to a baseball game, he took his oldest daughter 
to the St. Louis Cardinals opening day game at the beginning of one season. He was so excited to do this. He couldn't wait to share this experience that he loved with his oldest daughter. And so he took her to the ballpark. And they found their seats amidst the crowd and the buzz of opening day. St. Louis, big baseball city. They sat down in their seats with their soft drink and popcorn and a hot dog. And he just began to wait to see what she would say. He wanted to see what she would observe and what she would most enjoy about the ballpark because there's so much there to take in. And he just wanted to see what are her first words going to be. I can't wait. What's she going to say? I mean, is she going to say, Daddy, the field is so beautiful. It's so perfect. Or, Daddy, there are so many people here. There are thousands of people here, Daddy. Or, Daddy, is that really Ozzie Smith at shortstop? What's she going to say? Finally, he waited patiently and his daughter looked at him and she said, Daddy? And he took a deep breath. Daddy, all the seats have numbers. He was so disappointed. He couldn't believe, I brought her to the ballpark and look at all this and what she sees. is what, it's Obviously, the seats have numbers. Daddy, the seats have numbers. The women were looking for the obvious, and so they weren't prepared for what's significant. You know, their immediate observations were going to be, of course, the tomb is open. Well, now the tomb is empty. Well, then what? Well, somebody must have taken him. They were observing what was obvious to them, but Luke gives just a little slight help to the reader here, to Theophilus, and anyone reading this in verse 3 when he says, When they went in, they did not find the body of The Lord, the Kurios. Now, in Theophilus' world, the first century world, there was only one Lord. There was only one Kurios to anyone who looked for the obvious. And that was not a man named Jesus. It was the Roman emperor. That was the only Lord that there was. And so, in a sense, Luke is writing to this man and gives him a bit of a wake-up call. They didn't find the body of the Lord of the, the Kurios. And so Luke to Theophilus and to any reader looking at this is saying simply, look, this was not just a dead man in a tomb. Don't miss what's significant in your being consumed with what's obvious. We live in a con- confusing time. I mean, you recognize that, don't you? You know, if, if I don't shop regularly at Hobby Lobby, does that mean that I support abortion? Or if I actually do use Mozilla Firefox on my computer, does that mean that I'm opposed to traditional marriage? I mean, things are so intertwined, aren't they? It's just kind of confusing in the world in which we live. Things are not as obvious as we want them to be. It wasn't as obvious as these women wanted it to be either. I mean, look what the angels asked them. Did you see it? These men who were there that meet them, they asked them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? In other words... Why are you looking for what's obvious and you're missing what's significant? God has risen from the dead. Didn't you know? You should have known. He told you. Remember what he told you? Why are you looking for what's obvious? You're missing what's significant. Now, as if to twist it into us just a little bit more, Luke, 
along with his gospel colleagues, Matthew and Mark and John, gives another subtly significant detail here that that we must not miss, but we do. The women went back and reported to the men, the disciples. And and in verse 11, you can see what the disciples did in response to that. The women didn't tell anybody else, but ran back to tell the disciples. And Luke says, But these words seemed to the disciples an idle tale, and they did not believe them. Now here's the detail that Luke gives. The first witnesses of the resurrection were women. Don't miss that. You probably did, because in our context, that doesn't mean anything. We just don't read anything into that. Luke adds that Salome was one of them, and, 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 or Mark does, and Luke suggests that there were other women. There was a group of women all together. Matthew even says that the risen Christ met the women after they left the tomb going back to sell the... The risen Christ met the women on their way and spoke to them. Now, the obvious escapes us in our context. In our context, men and, and women, we, women are just as trustworthy as men. In the first century, that was not the case. In the first century, a woman's testimony was not even admissible in a court of law, certainly not in a religious court. They wouldn't listen to what a woman had to say. And so, of course, it seemed like an idle tale to the disciples. Woman, you're crazy. Dead men don't rise from graves. Go away and leave us. We're in mourning because our teacher is dead. They wouldn't have listened. So what's wildly obvious to a first century reader like Theophilus is completely hidden to a 21st century reader like us. If Luke was writing to Theophilus and and was making this up, if he was just fabricating a story, if Luke knew that no dead man rose from the grave, but he was just making this up in order to, to create some movement, as some suggest that the dis- disciples were doing. If Luke were just making this story up, he never would have allowed for women to be the first witnesses to the resurrection. He never would have done that. That would not have helped his case. Nobody would have believed it. And Matthew, Mark, and John do the same. They all do it. And it would not have helped their case unless it really happened. You know, this little detail is not obvious to us, but it tells us something profound. The gospel account is reliable. It actually did happen. If you're looking for what's obvious, you may miss altogether what's significant. But then Luke makes one more important point in verse 12 at the end of this passage, because he shows that Peter, unique disciple, Peter was looking for what is conclusive. And you know, if if you see that all things conclude in Christ, then, and only then, you find resolution. The disciples did not believe the women, Luke writes, but Peter rose and ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. Peter rose and ran. Why did he do that? The others didn't do it. The others were sitting there thinking of an idle tale and saying, women, get away from here. That's silly. Peter rose and he ran. Now, we know from John's account that John also rose and ran. They raced each other to the tomb. Luke doesn't tell us about John because Luke wants us to see Peter. Why did Peter get up and run to the tomb? 
Well, you remember his denials just a few nights before. Judas had betrayed Jesus in the garden, as we remembered just this Thursday night. In our Maundy Thursday service, Judas had betrayed Jesus in the garden, and then the the soldiers led him away to the high priest's house where the council met and began to question him and discuss what they were going to do with this blasphemer in their eyes. And Peter, Luke tells us, followed at a distance and gathered with the crowds that at this point were aware of something going on with the Jewish council. And they gathered around a fire in the courtyard outside the high priest's house. So And Peter was there, maybe so he could kind of follow along and see what was going to happen to Jesus. And a servant girl who was there said, this man, pointing at Peter, was with him, was with Jesus. And Peter said, I don't know him. And then a little while later, the same girl said, you are one of them. And Peter said, I am not one of them. And this must have been one of those precocious little kids who's just always into things and pointing at people and saying, I know you. You were one of them. And Peter said, no, I'm not. And then Luke tells us an hour later, someone else said, Look, man, you're a Galilean. You've got to be one of his guys. And Peter said, I don't know what you're talking about. And before the last words rolled off his tongue, the rooster crowed. And Luke gives us a little detail. He says, And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered that Jesus had said, You will deny me. And Peter ran out and wept bitterly. I don't don't know what it was. There was a window there in the courtyard. Maybe Peter could see through it and kind of see what was going on. And there was Jesus through the window. And at that moment, the Lord turned and looked at him. And Peter knew. He remembered. He told me I was going to deny. And I did it. I denied him. And Peter ran out and he wept bitterly. I don't know if you've ever had a moment of just losing control in the midst of a wave of repentance. And you just begin to weep bitterly. That's what Peter did. Now, you know the logo of our church. You can see it on the front of your bulletin there, that rooster. It's such a unique logo. It's really not as unique as you may think. You know, for for hundreds of years, churches have put roosters on the steeples of of their buildings. Do you know that? In Europe, especially. For hundreds of years, churches have done this. Why? Because it's a reminder that we doubt what we profess to believe. It's a reminder that we deny that we belong to Jesus because we're embarrassed or because we're not sure that we believe or because whatever reason we deny. And that rooster reminds us that just like Peter, we deny that we believe this good news. But the rooster clutches the cross this morning, doesn't he? He's hanging on to that cross. Why? Why was Peter so eager to rise and run? Because he knew that the song couldn't end on a flat note. He knew that stories don't end without resolution. Peter longed for the conclusion, and so he rose and he ran. The only conclusion that could possibly gain any traction with such a doubter with such a denier, is the resurrection from the dead. Life conquers death. Mercy conquers judgment. Justice fulfilled completes grace extended. Luke writes to the God-friendly and says, I want you to be certain of all these things, including this historical fact. God raised 
Jesus from the dead. Chuck Colson, you know that name. Chuck Colson was infamously uh, Richard Nixon's right-hand man in the Watergate scandal. And Colson, of course, served prison time. And much good came out of that, out of his own ministry for years. But Colson, reflecting back on that time and his coming to Christ himself and coming to faith, made a fascinating statement, putting his two experiences of Watergate and becoming a Christian together. Colson said this. He said, I know that the resurrection of Christ is a historical fact. Watergate proved it to me. How? He said, Twelve ordinary men testified that they had seen Jesus raised from the dead. And then they went and they proclaimed that truth for 40 years without ever once denying it. Every single one of them was beaten or stoned or tortured, or put into prison, they would not have endured that if it were not true. And then he said this, Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world in its trouble, and they couldn't keep alive for three weeks. The resurrection is true. It's not just a theological concept, it's a historical reality A man who was dead got up and walked out of the tomb because God raised him from the dead. What are you looking for? I can tell you what you're looking for. You're looking for resolution. You know that your life, despite all of its gratifying joys and its satisfying successes and its happy moments, of which there are so many of them, Thanks be to God for all of those things. But you know that your life, despite all those things, is in the end returned to dust. Is it just that all the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty together again? No. No, because he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with him. And so may you too go home marveling, marveling, That the one who made all things raised from the dead, the one who makes all things new. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. O Lord, we pray again that you would grant to us faith. Would you give us eyes to see, O Lord, so that we might have life again and again, and that we might grow in the grace of your Spirit working in us. O Lord, we confess that Something like the resurrection from the dead is almost impossible for us to believe. Apart from the work of your Spirit, we would deny it and call it but an idle tale. But, O Lord, apart from the resurrection, we have no hope in this world. And so we pray that you would grant to us increasing faith to walk in your way so that we might have life in your name, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.